what? We are still in January. <laughs> January is still with us. And guess what? If it's January 2020, it's still Happy New Year. Happy New Year again and again. And every day we should still be saying Happy New Year because it's 2020. Listen, you know, this is the year when we are counting people in this country. The census is so important. This is the, you know, every 10 years we count people in this country. And this is no joke. This is a, this is a very, very, very important political exercise because when you don't get counted, Counted, that means resources don't come into your community. And, you know, there's just as much of a push for us to be counted as there is a push for us not to be counted. Because when we are not counted, that means we are we don't exist. And, you know, there are always people. Ha ha ha. There's always people who are trying to make us non-existent. So let's get involved with the censors. You know, let's let's advocate getting getting counted, taking the census serious, answering all of the questions. Don't be afraid to to answer the questions of the census. We we the black people, we the brown people, we must be counted. Very important. We must be counted. And that's the word for today. Be counted. I count. I matter. I count. Yes, give me the census form. I count. Count me in. That's it. Count me in the census. It's Thursday. It's Dr. P on the pod. And guess what? Count me in. Dr. P on the pod. Yeah. Listen, I'm excited about my guest today, Dr. Joyce Ballsberry. Ha <laughs> ha. Joyce Ballsberry. She is about my height. Now, if you do, if you know me, you know I'm 6'2". <laughs> I know someone is laughing right now. I know a whole bunch of folks are laughing when they hear me say I'm 6'2". <laughs> No, I'm 4'11". Let the truth be told, I'm 4'11". And Dr. Joyce Ballsberry, she's right there with me. But I tell you, she is the Senior Associate Consultant at the Mayo Clinic uh, of Medicine out there in Rochester, Minnesota. She's Assistant Professor of Epidemiology. Yes, epidemiology. And for those of you who don't know, one point in time in my life, I wanted to be an epidemiologist. But I decided to be an immunologist instead, and now I am neither an immunologist either. That career has come to an end long time ago. Now I'm just the CEO founder of The Bomb in Gilead, where faith and public health Connect. Ah, yes. So this is the public health side of the bomb in Gilead. Uh, Dr. Ballsberry, she leads uh, the Mayo Clinic uh, Center for Clinical and Translational Science Community Engagement. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Well, you know, we're going to talk about what that means. We're going to talk about, you know, how it is so important that we, uh, the black folks, that we get involved with uh, with research, that we get involved with clinical trials, that we just really open ourselves up to 
health knowledge because medical science is moving so fast. Medical technology is moving so fast and oftentimes we are the last to know about it. And here at the Bomb and Gilead, we are so committed. We are so committed to bringing you the, the, the best and the first of everything. I am tired of black folks be the last to know, the last to get involved and, and by the time we get involved they are on to something else. We get the last of the last. So, you know, we get uh, uh, we get um, prescribed the medicine. That's the old medicine. We don't get the new medicine. You know, we get the old data. It's time out for that. Time out for that. That's why we have to get counted. That's why we have to open ourselves up to knowledge. That's why we have to get involved with research and medical science and knowledge. We have to get educated. So I'm excited. This is hardcore science today. Uh, hardcore science, Dr. Joyce uh, Ballsberry who is an epidemiologist out there at the Mayo Clinic. And uh, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk with Dr. Joyce Ballsberry. And Lord knows I'm excited because we see eye to eye. It's Dr. P on the podcast. Yeah. I'm getting educated for sure. God for another Thursday, and I'm excited that my guest today is Joy Ballsberry, excuse me, Dr. Joy Ballsberry, and she is the Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and Senior Associate Consultant at the Mayo Clinic, College of Medicine and Science out there in cold, very cold, extremely cold, Rochester, Minnesota. Sister Joy. Hello, Dr. P. It's such a joy to have you on the pod today. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to spend some time with you. You know, when I came out of um, way back yonder, when I was thinking about what I was going to be when I grew up, an epidemiologist was one of the things on my list. Really? I never knew that. It was. And um, I wanted to go to the University of Michigan and study uh, and become an epidemiologist. But... That didn't happen. <laughs> but you know what? You were doing epi in your own way. In my own, in my own way. So tell me, because I was once upon a time interested in epidemiology, tell us what is epidemiologist and why you decided to become an epidemiologist. So epidemiology is the study of health and disease, and I'm actually a psychiatric epidemiologist. Oh, Lord have mercy. And so, uh, <laughs> psychiatric my, epidemiologist. Yeah, so my work really looks at comorbid health conditions that are linked to mental and emotional health um, concerns, but I'm also a health educator as well. And I I feel that I fell into my profession. My Mm. path was not leaning towards epi. Uh, My dad was a public health guy. He was a a biologist by training and a former health commissioner. And when I graduated from college, my first real job was as a church secretary. So, and you learn a whole lot. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. As a church secretary. Yes, you do. And yes, you so do. And so, an internship came across his desk uh, from for uh, a recent graduate to work in seroepidemiology at the Missouri Department of Health. And I applied, and he said, I won't get the job for you because you have to get it yourself. Mm. 
and that led into my first position 22 years ago in epidemiology, and I've been an epidemiologist for 21 years now. Wow, wow. So tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit more about psychiatric epidemiologists. So, you know, a lot of the psychiatric epidemiologists really started off looking at intervention work. So many of them started off in the field of behavioral health interventions around mental and emotional health concerns. The group that I trained with at WashU all those years ago really looked at HIV and AIDS um, as well as mental and emotional health concerns that might go along with um, potential folks using substances like crack cocaine or heroin or other um, substances that might place them at risk for other communicable diseases or sexually transmitted infections. And that's how I started off in the world, really looking at um, people that were exposed to or even used, even if it was an occasional use of alcohol or crack cocaine, and if they had any sexual risk behaviors that led into a potential risk for HIV. And then also asking them questions about why did they use. And many times it was to self-medicate for other things like depression Mm -hmm. or anxiety or other um, emotional problems as well. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot to uh, a lot to impact there. Yes, it is. Yes, indeed. So now we're at the Mayo Clinic. Mm hmm. (laughs) <laughs> I love the Mayo Clinic. I do, too. <laughs> I love the Mayo Clinic. What makes the Mayo Clinic the Mayo Clinic? I think the fact that our founding over 150 years ago, so we just celebrated a few years ago our sesquicentennial, mm-hmm. um, really fostered the opportunity where the needs of the patient come first. And you hear that, but it's actually true. The care models that are set up for patients are usually involve multidisciplinary teams in order to find out exactly what will help that patient reach wellness. Um, On our education side, we really think about our learners, so our medical students, our graduate students, phlebotomy students, or other students that are taking our certificate masters or medical school or PhD programs what are those students' needs, and what do they really want to do in their careers next? And then on our research shield, we really think about how can research increase overall wellness? Mm -hmm. And that can be in the forms of basic bench science to patient-centered outcomes research or even disparities in public health Mm -hmm. uh, type of research as well. And, you know, and we know... um the Balm and Gilead, we are advocates for African Americans getting into clinical studies. Yes, I know We that. have to um, get into clinical studies. I was very, um, very uh, surprised a couple, of, a couple of days ago, a matter of fact, when a very dear 85-year-old friend of mine, she called me up and she said, Panessa? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, um, now, I don't want you to scream. But I've decided that I want to give my body to medical science. Mm. I'm like, what? Because never in my life has anybody that I know of, especially a black woman, 
at an 85 say that they want to give their body to you know to um, medical research mm-hmm. so she had the papers and she wanted me to be her agent if you will mm-hmm. and uh, and we have done that you know but she is at that point in time of her life of what she's going to do with her body but for 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 so many of us you know um, there are so many clinical trials out there clinical studies that we really need to get into and one of the things I've seen over these several years we have we now have two groups of African-Americans. We have one group that is still not aware of clinical studies, and we mm-hmm. have to continue to educate them and help them to understand what is a clinical study and why we need to be be involved in them. And then we have the a next group who have said, I understand, I want to be involved in a clinical study, but I can't find one. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm at. You know, I we get calls all the time on, you know, is there a clinical study that we can get into? Mm-hmm. And I go blank because, you know, well, there's one, but it's in Rochester. Well, there's one, well, but there's in New York. You know, and that is where I see that's the problem for a set, for a set of African Americans who have said, yes, I want to be involved, but it's how do I get in? So I think that that's very true. Um, As you know, most of my research focuses on engaging our community, the African-American community, because as an African-American woman and scientist, I would be doing a disservice to my community if I wasn't involving them. And so it's exactly what you said. There are these two groups. There's one group that doesn't know anything about research Mm -hmm. or the benefits of research, be it clinical trial or observational studies or population-based studies. And then there's this other group who has some knowledge of it, but they're never asked. And so the, the hard part is we think about literacy. So it always goes back to literacy, functional literacy, do we know how to read and write, and then health literacy, are we literate when it comes to the health information that we're provided? But research literacy is a, is a completely different ballgame because it has nothing to do whether or not we can read or write or understand health information. It's whether or not we know how to seek the information about research. Mm-hmm. And if we're able to navigate the space to make sure that we have a voice and can advocate for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So several years ago, we conducted a study with the Lynx Incorporated Mm -hmm. where we looked at um, high-income earning African-American women, and we asked the question, would they want to be involved in research? And if so, what kind of research? All of them, not all of them, but most of them, and I, I won't quote the stats for you because it kind of escapes me right now, but a majority of them said that they wanted to participate in clinical trials. But the sad part is most of them weren't asked. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we have is we've done some other work um, looking at the scientific literature to find out how communities of color were asked to participate and even engaged in the research process. Mm. And the ones that were more active and more successful actually had programs where they had cultural brokers or community health workers or promotoras or others that could help increase research literacy in the communities that needed to participate in the research the most. Now we're at a stage where, like for instance, in Rochester, only about 6 to 8% of the community is African-American in a town of 115,000 people. 
So there's not a big pool of us right there, but we do have two other campuses Mm -hmm. in Jacksonville, Florida, and then our campuses in Arizona and Scottsdale and Phoenix. But the other problem that we have is thinking about who's funding the work. And if the work is being funded where you can only work at one site, be it Rochester, then how can you engage the population that might be in need at our other two campuses? Mm -hmm. And this is the story with multiple institutions Mm -hmm. around the country. The other thing that Um, that we have to do is think about more creativity in terms of training the research workforce Mm -hmm. on engaging us because they understand the the complexity that goes around things like Tuskegee and Henrietta Lacks Mm -hmm. within their training Mm -hmm. but sometimes they are not trained in okay I want you to go to this black church and have a conversation with the church leadership or with the members, and I want you to go out there and talk to them about your work in a way that they understand. And it's pushing that paradigm to make a shift so that investigators and research teams aren't afraid to get outside of the walls of that's their right. institutions. That's right. And it's and it's hard because that's usually not how we're trained. Mm-hmm. You know, as an epidemiologist, I was lucky because the group that I trained with was in the community. But that's not always right. the case. Right. So we have this, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. where we have to make sure that our community, especially black folks, are empowered to ask the questions. And then on the other side is making sure the healthcare teams and the research professionals are trained with how to have a conversation with us. Right. And that it's not only about what the healthcare system or the biomedical research team wants, but it's also about what the community wants as well. You know, it's, 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 uh, I agree with you that it's a real um, multi-level difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Um, we work, Bomb and Gilead, we work with corporations and, and oftentimes we have corporate partners, thank God for them. And, um, they they understand they've come to a place thank god that they understand and want to involve african americans in their clinical studies right and they've come to an african american organization to help them which is wonderful fabulous but they have no african they'll send us all the materials and they don't look like don't a, look like African Americans. They don't have any black folks on their on their brochures, right? And then we have a conversation, and then it's about well, um, we'll have to go back and take another six months to get that approved. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's so you know it's uh, it's it's very frustrating. You know, it's very mm-hmm. frustrating that now we finally have our corporate partners to a place where they understand they won't have African-Americans involved. They've reached out to a knowledgeable organization that they are clear can deliver African-Americans into the system, but they have yet to understand that you must look like your target audience, your information, the cultural competence is exactly. lacking. Exactly. The cultural competence is lacking. And, you know, and I think that, you know, we have to continue, you and I and every Everybody that understand what it takes to engage African Americans, we have to continue this work until we have the whole the whole pie uh, mm-hmm. ready to go. Because we're still, you know, we, the industry still doesn't get it. 
well, that, it, you know, culture, you cannot, you know, bring in everybody with the same message, you know? Exactly. And there's, there is this complexity about building bi-directional relationships and partnerships. It's about what are our shared values. So they know Bomb of Gilead has the shared value that they have on, on changing the paradox of research, where all communities have a voice, namely the African-American community. Mm -hmm. But yet, within many of our bureaucratic systems, we have not changed the paradox of who's in leaderships within those systems. So it goes back to being very transparent from the beginning. So one of the things that I, I like to tell my community partners when I work with them Yes, I know you want to get this done tomorrow, but I might have to get an IRB. That might take me four months. Mm-hmm. I also have to make sure that we have money in place. That might take a year. I also have to make sure that I have the staff that can help us collect the data. Mm-hmm. That's going to take time to hire. Mm-hmm. And another year. Another year. <laughs> and so, you know, so it takes time because of how the systems are set up. But I also think that as scientists, we have a greater responsibility. So there's been time when I've done things in kind with my community partners for something that they may have needed, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that I may not have had time on my schedule and I've just made the time Mm -hmm. because it's uberly important for them to get ahead. Mm -hmm. I've even helped community groups write grants to get things that they've needed just to keep their doors mm-hmm. open. Mm-hmm. So we we have to think beyond our needs as scientists and think about the bigger good. Right. So the um, the one thing that I would challenge your partners, your corporate partners, is asking them, have they set up any patient or community advisory boards mm-hmm. or advisory groups? And if so, what do those groups look like? What do they look like? Big question. And who and how are they seeking their stakeholders? Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I would ask them is what is their plan for diversity and inclusion and belonging? Mm-hmm. So we talk a lot about wanting to recruit or diverse applicants within medical research. And then we get them in the room. And then we say, okay, we want you to sit at the table then they're sitting at the table, but then they have no voice at the table. Right. So how do we ask them to say, okay, well, I see you've hired minority women. I see you've hired immigrant and minority men and women and by gendered individuals and things like that, and your diversity is increasing. But what are their job duties? What do you have them working on? And are you giving them the time they need to cultivate relationships that won't happen overnight? Mm -hmm. And then do they feel like their voice is heard? Mm -hmm. That's good. That's real good. I've been talking to my sister Joy, and I hate to have to go, but I'm going to have to go. But I'm going to ask you one more question. Yes, ma'am. And this is the community, because I can hear the folks in uh, in Yamasee, South Carolina, all over the country, wanting to know how do I get to see a doctor at the Mayo Clinic? You know, let's let's bring it on down to the community, to okay. the folks who are gonna call me 
Vanessa, I heard uh, who who was the sister you had on the on your on your on your on your podcast? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I see a doctor at the Mayo Clinic? Let's get basic here. Okay. <laughs> so one of the things that Mayo has is more recently we have changed some of our billing models and things like that, which is great. Where we're accepting a lot of different types of insurance. Usually most patients come in through a referral from their physician. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll check your insurance status. And because I'm not a physician, I don't know all the complexities of that. Now, on the flip side, I have helped my family become patients at Mayo. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's always started with a referral. And that way, I usually suggest to my family members and I'll just keep it real, is to look for a primary care physician at one of the male locations mm-hmm. and then go in for your primary care visits. Now, it sometimes takes a while because Mayo, we, we have three campuses, but we also have sister hospitals within our Mayo Clinic Care Network across the country and things like that as well that do um, have access to the Mayo resources as well. So the first place I would start would be um, our website, mayoclinic.org, and then talk to their current physician about doing a referral and then being persistent and then looking on the specialty area that they're interested in. So be it OBGYN, be it nephrology or for women's health or for kidney disease or for diabetes, finding a physician in that space on the website because all of them are listed Mm -hmm. and then cold calling that office and asking for an appointment that's great that's great well thank you so much sister joy ballsberry for being on the pod today this has been a great conversation and um and i've learned a lot and i hope my family who's listening has learned a lot too guess what y'all it's thursday And you know it's Thursday. It's got to be, will always be, Dr. P on the pod. Holla!